0: Treblefield, the auto money, that's 21-421. And if the appellant's ready, we
1: will hear from the appellant. Thank you, Your Honor. And um, without making the mistake last time, I'll reserve five minutes. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Um, If I may, I I know you said you'd give us some leeway. If I could just touch on a couple of things. Um, um, And and obviously, um, um, Mr. Fauchet as well to address it. But one of the issues that was raised was um, we didn't... Asked for there be findings of fact on the 12B3. So um, we did look at the transcript. I guess we could disagree about how clear that was. But I would want to point you um, to the order, which is on the record at page 630. Um, the, the court in the first preamble clause says this matter comes before this court on defendant's motion to dismiss pursuant to 12B2, 12B3, and 12B6. So that defines all the motions. Um, and then before leading into the findings of fact, um, the order is written that says, based on the foregoing for the limited purpose of deciding the pending motions, um, the court hereby makes the following findings of fact and conclusions of law. So I would just point you to that part that um, even though they weren't requested, I, I don't know if they were requested is what I'm trying to say with the transcript. but. Clearly the order um, meant to address those, all three motions um, in the order. Um, oh, and the, the other thing is um, with Wakeman, um, there is no affidavit for the plaintiff Wakeman. Um, so there would be no other supporting evidence just for that specific person. So that's just a nuance um, for the record. So turning to Treblefield now. Um, I do want to address the in issue about what is the appropriate standard for the um, choice of venue issue, which is actually front and center with Trouble Field. The judge issued actually the first order on January 14th of 2021, 20, uh, and that order specifically addressed the 12b3 issue. I mean, that, it, that order is straight to the 12b3. So I, I, w- I would just say that, that that matter was directly before the court. Um, the court was ruling on it. Sorry, I feel like it's a bit loud. Um, and 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 we think that. But for the standard of care, um, I totally agree that if you're looking at the clause and it's just contractual interpretation, is this clause mandatory? Is it drafted correctly? Um, does it hit all the bells and whistles for being a mandatory form uh, uh, form selection clause? Um, that's de novo I mean, that is looking at it, and I think Judge Hampson, you're the one that brought that up that is a de novo review um, then you get to the portion of the abuse of st- uh, discretion and, and I would say that if we're looking at findings of fact um, are those findings of fact supported by the record? If they are that is an abuse of discretion or that's clear error so, I think it's a mixed standard. So, I think when your honors reside back in the chambers and you want to review this and look at the order, when you come to that first issue on choice of venues, is this mandatory? Is this binding? Um, you know, it says exclusive twice under North Carolina law. If you use the words exclusive, solely, um, exclusively, those make it mandatory. Um, that's settled law. So, then you turn to what is the standard that they would have to overcome um, with the findings of fact? Um, and, and you can look at that as abuse of discretion. In, in Wall, there's none. Um, and, and I think what you were going with, Jobs-Hampson, and correct me if I'm wrong, saying do we look at a choice of venue like a 12v6, meaning can we look at other stuff outside of the four corners of the complaint? Um, you know, for Wall, I would say yes, I think you should. I do, because I do think when you um, look at the affidavits um, that are put into the record, that there's just simply nothing in there to support um, a finding of it being a a result of fraud or overreaching or unequal bargaining power. I think just arguing, hey, they went to South Carolina, they had to sign it, that's not supported by anything in the record. I mean, that's an argument. That's not – Evidence in the record that would support that conclusion of law. So because of the lack of findings I think what you'll find yourself when you look at it is you're going to end up saying looking at it de novo Um, But you get back to what should we do with this? Um, Well, if it is a mandatory uh, uh, Form selection clause and is it mandatory in South Carolina uh, It it should be dismissed Um, and, And the case should be filed Um, In the correct uh, venue, then all those factual things can be litigated um, that Judge Wood so appropriately put where they bargained for. It's a contract. Um, You know, this is in America under the Bethel case. You know, here, this circuit said that, you know, parties are free to contract. Um, And they said, in fact, when there is a form selection clause, uh, it, it expresses the intent that the parties wish to apply a law that what otherwise wouldn't apply. But that's not even the case here. And the reason why is lex loci contractus. The law, the otherwise applicable law is South Carolina. I mean, I I just, I can't state it enough that all of the cases looking at where is the lex loci contractus, where is it done out of the circuit for the last 70 years have all said it is the place where the last signature is affixed. Look at the Rabo case for Venue. The application was faxed to a farmer um, in North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina farmer filled it out, sent it back. But the application actually said that when you sign the loan document, it won't be effective until it's signed in corporate headquarters in Iowa. Um, That's something uh, Judge McGuire looked at in the Western Sky. There was nothing else in the contract that said, where was this contract to be performed? or sign. Um, that was one of the facts that they looked at. Well, in Rabo, he signed the loan contract in North Carolina, sent it back to Iowa, and the last signature was a fix there. And, and the court said, you have to dismiss it. That's a very recent case, I think a 2019 case before this court. So all of those are saying there, there is a long line of established law that, again, going back to my theme, is What auto money is asking to do is asking this court to adhere to and recognize the decades of law that have been established about where is the formation of the contract. Um, There's nothing like I pointed out in chapter 24.21 which would push the reach of of the very provision of, of, of the usury statutes to apply to whether or not a venue clause is enforceable. There's, there's nothing in that statutory language. I know he pointed to that subsection G of the statute, which is the catch-all statute. It reads, any provision of this section, which is 24-21, any provision of this section which acts to interfere in the attainment of that public policy shall be no effect. So there's nothing interfering with the venue clause. This is a usury statute. I I don't know, and and there's no case law to support that this statute has ever been applied to a venue issue. It's novel. There's nothing to support it, but nothing in this statute affects, in this section, affects the attainment of this chapter. What it affects is a different chapter. And that's not what it does. Like, if they wanted this statute to apply to any other loan but for a real estate loan which the legislature did, in they would have done so. So this goes back to Mitchell and um, the Kroc case. That we're not to insert words, we're not to exclude words, and we're supposed to take the words of the statute on their face. The words of the statute on their faces, this applies just to the chapter twenty-four. It doesn't apply to chapter twenty-three. We're not to read it beyond that clear intent. Um, as well as the words are different, deemed contract. Chapter twenty-four is they actually entered into the contract. So, what we're asking the court to do is, and, and it, it is a title lending case, and I understand that, um, but. Auto money as well, if, if, if you can, try to sit yourself in my client's shoes. Okay, we, we don't just have stores on the border of North Carolina. In South Carolina, there are over 80 stores. They operate throughout the state. Okay, This is a South Carolina company owned by a husband and wife. They employ hundreds of people. Um, we have to comply with South Carolina law we do comply with South Carolina law. And and frankly, that's why we put into our contracts that if you come to South Carolina, you should expect to sue us in South Carolina. And we expect that you would apply the very laws that we're regulated by, that we're licensed under. Um, So with the choice of law, I also want to turn you to the Clarkson case. It was um, (coughs) Clarkson versus... um, but it's the Clarkson case and it it had to do um, with the Maryland lender and the the case is really interesting because in that case what the Maryland lender did is it actually bought loans Um, it, it bought title loans that were originated in the state and what happened is, so if you went to a car dealership or if you went to um, a finance company and they originated the loan, let me see if I can find that. Yes, it's Clarkson versus Finance Company of America at Baltimore. And it's a Fourth Circuit case. And what they did is the, is the Baltimore company actually came to North Carolina and negotiated the loan. Um, They were actually buying loans uh, that were originated um, in South Carolina. And in fact, the collection of the payments um, and uh, the the collection activities were done by a local North Carolina servicer. But what the court looked to is the representative of Baltimore Finance Company came to North Carolina, um, got one signature, took it back to Baltimore. And the last signature to be affixed to the contract uh, was in Baltimore. And and what the court said was it said, you know, we should abide by Maryland um, law. Um, That company operated in multiple states. And the court pointed out that if a company operates in multiple states, that it should have an expectation uh, for consistency to be bound by one choice of law. Uh, And and I would submit to you that auto money sits in a very similar position. I mean, again, we're licensed um, in in South Carolina. We're audited by the state of South Carolina. Everything we do um, in South Carolina, from the legislature's eyes in South Carolina, what we're doing is perfectly legal. So to some extent, when, when you're looking at these fundamental public policies yes I understand that um, the usury statute made says it's a public policy in North Carolina but again these people made a decision to leave North Carolina go to South Carolina and, and enter into a loan there and that's exactly what the, the Barnes case says is it says when you leave North Carolina and you enter into a contract in another state, there's no violation of public policy. And and they actually relied on the Bundy case. I mean, that, that's what they say. They say, once you leave the protection of our borders, um, it doesn't violate that public policy. And plus, it falls outside of, of the analysis. So when you heard him talk about the choice of law, OK, what he said is he referred to borders, and he said, um, courts, I believe it was Judge Eagles and Judge Biggs, which again are reviewing arbitration awards at a different standard, that they said it violated public policy. But if you remember when I spoke to you, that's not where the analysis stops. The, the, the standard is it violates the public policy of the otherwise applicable law, and that's the key. You can't stop at the analysis that does it subvert a North Carolina public policy, that test that has been put forth um, by the Barnes court, um, by the Clarkson court, any court looking at the choice of law, they always, and even the Western Sky case, they look at at the otherwise applicable law. That's why all those cases look at where those contracts entered into outside the state's court.
2: Council, let me, let me ask you a question, sure. I guess, and obviously i got to take it back to what I asked um, based upon the formation of your argument. What if part of the public policy uh, in North Carolina said, okay, if, if a citizen avails themselves to this contract, um, the only way you could perfect it is for them to have to avail that property to your state. Do you deem that to be violation of your company's rights in South Carolina because North Carolina law would say, well, you can't come to North Carolina and perfect it. You can't come and put your hands on it. The only way you can get it, because they, the only way you're saying that you're protected by formation is they went down to South Carolina. So you, do you see my question as far as do you do you feel that, that would violate your interest or some rights? Uh, in your in your company
1: can you restate that i'm sorry yeah.
2: I didn't so you're saying that the citizens have availed themselves to south carolina to come and get the loan yes sir so what if there was a statute in north carolina that said well the only way that we're going to allow you and the, the terms of this contract to be the way that you want it to be with the interest rates so forth and so on, is that the only way you can perfect that interest is they ultimately have to avail that property to you if there is a failure for them to comply you can 't come to North Carolina and get your property if they if they fail to comply with the contract you can't enter North Carolina to get it. Do you feel that would in some way violate a interest that your company has in being able to you know perfect that right
1: that, that, that's an interesting question um, because that i, I would think goes more to that commerce issue, right, yeah. on whether you're regulating um, cross border um, transactions. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, luckily we're not here today. It's not before the court. But it, <laughs> it, there are undertones of it, correct? Yeah. Because I'm arguing, you know, you North Carolina should be able to reach over um, under mm-hmm. the common law and how it's done. But l- let's focus on the statute um, at hand, which is 53190 that regulates those activities. If you look at that statute, um, it's pretty broad, right? It's broad. So it's got discussions, solicitations, um, you know, broad activities. Um, how broad were they intended about what type of discussions, you know, like in securities law, there's puffery, those aren't real negotiations, um, so what is it, right, under that, so let's not go there, but what I would say, where you're talking about coming to get our property, if you look at that statute, it, it, it stops at the exchange of money, so if you look at 53-190, it doesn't talk about post-contractual activities. It doesn't talk about um, the filing against the, D- the DMV, which is you know that's not by our choice that's what the UCC says, right It's title equipment. Um, the only way you can perfect a lien in title equipment is by um, charging the lien with wherever the title is registered. That's just how you perfect. Um, that's not something I mean that's what the Uniform Commercial Code says so.
0: But well, are we talking about the North Carolina Uniform Commercial Code or the South Carolina Uniform Commercial Code here? It, which which one's oh, applying oh, here,
1: right? That, they, they both do. But what I'm saying is, if you look at that statute, it stops. It doesn't talk about post-contractual payments. Um, it doesn't talk about the filing of liens. It doesn't um, talk about um, you know collection activities afterwards. So. You know, I I would say that's a a, a different question from what we're here, but if we're looking on whether we're going to enforce it on their face, um, as alleged in the complaint with the admission um, that all the contracts were entered into in South Carolina, um, again, all I would say is, you know, please, again, um, follow the law. I mean, I'm not aware of any case law um, that says that 53190, is not controlled by a choice of law provision. Um, so one of the arguments that they made in their brief, and, and I think is pretty important um, to talk about, is, is I think it's the Collins case versus Atkins, which is an insurance law case. Um, if you look at the statute, and, and they they, they cite it for the proposition um, that the insurance statute, um, because it's the tort, it controls which law applies. Um, but that statute actually says um, the provisions of this uh, the, 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 law, the provisions of the statute shall provide thereto. Um, or the law of the statute will apply to the transaction um, in, in layman's term. If you look at fifty three one ninety, um, it actually doesn't say um, that is the law to be applied to the transaction. The, the, the very words of it don't say that. So, and again, I would I submit to you, that's why there's no case law for that proposition. It's because it's not what the statute says. And if you go back to Mitchell, um, and if you go back to Carrot, you know, you're to read it by its plain language. 53190 does not say the laws of this statute shall apply to all these transactions. It's, it's just not what it says. Um, so when they changed, and if you look in their brief, and I actually think it's on page 21, um, that language was actually in the 1961 version that they cited in their brief on page 31. That language was taken out. So there was a reason it was taken out, and I would submit to you, is because they're not to apply to all transactions. If there is a choice of law provision, um, and it's valid, and it's binding, And it's the law of the otherwise applicable state, Um, South Carolina law should apply. And 53 190 does not trump that. Um, At at this point in time, I I would like to turn to some of the fact specific um, portions of the trouble field order, particularly with with the venue clause.
0: And I want to make sure you take time to get to your 12 v 2 argument broadly. Okay. Um, And in particular, address the application of the Ford case.
1: Yes, so I will do that right now. Then. Okay. Um, the application of the Ford case is, I think there's a couple of distinguishing facts, factors with the application of the Ford case. Um, first of all, if, if I remember correctly, there was actually a stipulation um, in that case um, that they were doing business in, in Pretty sure that, that that is correct on its face. So that's different. Sort of There's broadly,
2: one, they were. Yes. Yes. yes.
1: Um, and, and, and secondly, they were really relying to cut, the, the to sever the contacts with the per sale rule, um, which is a sale from the manufacturer to the dealership, um, which the court didn't bite on That is, They said, no, 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 you have dealerships. They're making sales. These are brand-new cars. you got dealerships everywhere in Minnesota and Montana. Um, we're not biting on that. So I I would submit that this is different, because there's no stipulation. Um, We don't have any stores in North Carolina. Um, We're not consummating the the transactions in North Carolina. And then getting to some of those provisions as well, I mean, the Stallings case that we cite, for example, says that simply the receipt of payments, I mean, he's referring to us receiving payments. They say that's not enough to confer um, jurisdiction, um, as well as um, activities that are incidental to the lending activity, which would be collection or perfection. Because once you sign the contract, it's binding, right? We have a contractual obligation. Is it secured? Is it unsecured? Um, that's determinative by some incidental conduct. But the last act of the binding legal nature is the affixation of the signature. So that happens in South Carolina. Um, so, and in fact, As you can tell, I mean, we direct all of our activity into South Carolina. Um, So, yes, we may talk to people on the phone, um, but we are not sending loan applications to anyone in North Carolina. Um, We tell them to come to South Carolina. We are not sending loan documents to anyone in North Carolina. When we have the opportunity, when auto money has the opportunity, we are directing all activities into North Carolina into North Carolina. Now, I understand the marketing and solicitation, and Your Honors, I would submit in this day and age, uh, I have three children. I mean, they're seeing from stuff all over the world. (laughs) I mean, just, it's different, right? Um, There's the far reach of the Internet. Um, There's the far reach of uh, television um, and radio. But if you look at the Marion case, which we cited to in our reply brief, um, the Marion case had to do with a gentleman that put out national advertising about fixing up cars. Um, uh, he, he drove a truck to North Carolina from Georgia. He picked up a Bentley. Um, he drove it back to Georgia to um, do whatever work he was doing. Um, and, and what the court said, this court said, was they said national advertising was simply Doing something antecedent to the contract, which is you got to pick up the car to work on it, um, was not enough to create personal jurisdiction. So, you know, I, I would really, w- when you look at personal jurisdiction, we're not um, doing loans in North Carolina. We are directing that activity into South Carolina. And in getting to that, the Fill order um, made some bizarre findings that. We availed ourselves of personal jurisdiction because we were choosing to litigate in North Carolina. Um, I believe that was at paragraph 31 of that order, um, that we were availing ourselves in North Carolina because we were defending multiple lawsuits in multiple counties, and we had not moved, the defendant hadn't moved the class it. Um And I think uh, the lower court may have misunderstood the nature of a removal statute where one plaintiff has to be over 75,000 compared to the consolidated amount, um, which is a a bit different. But I have never seen any law that would say we would be subject to jurisdiction um, because, well, in fact, it's ironic. We moved to transfer it to South Carolina he denied it. So that denial actually forced us to be here today. So
2: um,
1: the personal jurisdiction, um, um, the the four cases distinguishable. I was going to, I think I was going to flip back and talk about that Carnival Cruise case. um, And you are into
0: your rebuttal time, just so you know. Pardon? You're into your rebuttal time, just so you know. Okay. But you control it.
3: Okay. Good afternoon again. Um, I want to talk about the wall case just for a moment to address something that that he said. Uh, And and that is, if you look at the end of of her order, I know she mentions motions at the top. But if you look at the end of of her order, the last three paragraphs, which are at page 641 in the record, uh, I think it is clear that she is basing her personal jurisdiction denial on the findings of fact and conclusions of law in her order. But she is not basing her denial of the 12 b3 or the 12 b6 on that you know she includes uh, as as you've noted i think judge hampson noted some limited reasoning about there being a a resident of richmond county and then she points out with regard to 12b6 that it is uh, based upon needing a more complete evidentiary record to evaluate the 12b6 issue so i i you know the transcript says nothing about asking for findings of fact on the motion for um, to enforce the forum selection clause. And I think if you look at the totality of her order, it is clear that those findings are not intended to relate to that determination. I also wanted to follow up on something that you asked about, Judge Gore, which would be remanding this case for findings. I think that would be limited to, there's only a certain subset of the wall plaintiffs that have a forum selection clause, and it would be limited to that issue. It would, would be our view of that Um, I I, want to get back to um, the the big picture which I I think affects all of these issues and they, they talk about as part of the public policy analysis that you need to consider what is the otherwise applicable law and the otherwise applicable law here are the statutes that we have cited in our complaint the North Carolina Consumer Finance Act And Chapter 24, auto money, although they have not filed an answer to the complaints in any of these cases yet, in their submissions to the court below and to their arguments, I don't think they argue that these statutes but for the choice of law provision would apply to them. They admit to having discussions with North Carolina borrowers. Uh, They admit to perfecting security interests. They admit to taking cars in North Carolina. In fact, these are the statutes that we've sued under, so that is the otherwise applicable law. The lex loci analysis that, that they advance for the purpose of establishing that the place where the contract was signed is the otherwise applicable law simply does not apply to consumer loans given the North Carolina statutory scheme. The otherwise applicable law is North Carolina law, and what would apply in an arm's length consumer, tra- excuse me, a commercial transaction, a lex loci analysis, as, as your questions went to earlier, Judge Gore, doesn't apply here. The statute has the statutes are clear about what transactions the statutes govern, and they are the otherwise applicable law. N- nor do I think they're making any argument here that uh, if the statutes apply, they're violating the, the highest interest rate that is permitted in North Carolina for these types of loans, a loan of, more, of less than $4,000 that is made to a consumer for a household purchase, household loan, uh, is 30%. The, the interest rates in these loans are 150, 170, in some cases over 200%. So th- there's, no, there's no question that if these statutes apply, and by their terms they clearly do, that auto money is violating them. Well, we haven't made it to that part of the litigation. I understand. I understand
0: Right. We're, we're dealing with these preliminary issues before we, before we deal with whether, whether or not the, the substantive claims themselves may or may not be successful. That, that's clearly a separate question.
3: Fair, fair enough, Your Honor. But I, their, their entire defense is based on the premise at this point with the motions they filed. Their entire defense is based on the premise that they can contract around clearly applicable North Carolina law. And the the legislature, when it drafted 53190A, put put a safe harbor provision in there for out-of-state lenders. You can have whatever your other state law provides if you comply with the statute and don't have any discussions, negotiations, offers, acceptances, contractual activities in North Carolina under subsection A. And under subsection B, which applies to all loans an an out-of-state lender makes, if that out-of-state lender solicits in North Carolina or otherwise comes into North Carolina to conduct activities with regard to such loans, then that lender is subject to North Carolina. And there are mandatory words in both Section A and Section B. It uses the word shall. And there's no provision in that chapter that would allow a lender to contract around those provisions in the manner that they are seeking to so do so here. And it's, Council,
0: what case law would you say supports your position that a contract that's made in a foreign state at a higher interest rate than is allowed by this state is necessarily contrary to public
3: policy? Well, I think that the, 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 the North Carolina, the, the, the first North Carolina case that I'm aware of that addresses this is the Bundy case, which I think both sides have cited. Which, which stands for the proposition that a contract made in another state, if there is a bad faith intent to evade North Carolina law, can be subject to North Carolina law, uh, which kind of hunts in the public policy, you know, uh, forest, as it were. And in that case, what the, court, what the Supreme Court said is that is, a, that is a factual determination, and it remanded the case for trial, and there was a trial on that issue and that is a factual determination. The other cases that talk about the public policy are the Western Sky case, which admittedly, Judge McGuire had additional facts in that case that are not present here. It was the state that was involved. But he did find, citing to the Bayer case, that North Carolina will not, in the the lending context, will not enforce a, a choice of law provision that violates North Carolina public policy. And I think these issues have come up as well in the uh, cases that have been before the federal court evaluating whether arbitration awards should be confirmed. Because the issue in those arbitration confirmations is whether the arbitrator failed to apply uh, the correct law. And the the, the lenders that were contesting those arbitration awards have said this was a manifest disregard for the law, this is clear, and you should have applied this out-of-state law. And what judge eagles in the strange case and judge biggs in the um in the cases in the goins litigation has said is that that is not that is not the case there is a basis to apply north carolina law based on public policy and in fact what um, judge uh, judge biggs wrote is that where the statute says it applies where the statute sets the policy and says it applies that is really the end of the choice of law analysis for these statutory claims
0: and 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 that has to be the the sort of the crux of your your argument here based on the complaint is that the statutes themselves are are the ones that articulate the the fundamental public policy of the state because Absolutely. as i see it you have not alleged bad faith or or, or fraudulent activity in the complaints which might otherwise lead to some, some sort of, you know, more, I'll call it common
3: law, public policy. I think we, we, we have alleged that they, if you look at the way that they've set up their stores, and I think that the order touches on this and and we have alleged in, in our complaint that they have purposely established, this is page three of the record, page three and four of the record. That defendant has purposely established its business locations just across the North Carolina-South Carolina state line to avoid the application of North Carolina law to loan contracts to enter, defendant enters into with North Carolina residents, such as plaintiff. Defendant required the execution of the written title loan agreements at issue in South Carolina in bad faith with the purpose and intent of evading the usury laws of North Carolina. So what what you I think you need to look at is What is the legislature, North Carolina legislature, trying to regulate and what have we alleged happened here? And what the North Carolina legislature, both in Chapter 53 and in Chapter 24, is clearly trying to regulate is the situation where a North Carolina resident has communications with an out-of-state lender about a loan that fits within the provisions of Chapter 24 or Chapter 53? And what law will apply to that loan if it is consummated after those communications initially occurred while that borrower was in North Carolina? And the North Carolina legislature has been crystal clear that the law that North Carolina will apply to those transactions is North Carolina law. And that is exactly the business model that we have alleged auto money has, has with these North Carolina borrowers. They advertise in North Carolina. They solicit in North Carolina. We actually have in the record the envelope of the letter that Miss Troublefield received showing that she received the solicitation from auto money. And then once they have had that communication with that North Carolina resident to establish them as a potential customer and have talked to them about the loan. And again, the facts are going to vary for each different loan transaction. Only then does the North Carolina resident travel out of state, in some cases just out of state, and execute these loan documents. And Auto money wants you to focus on only that last piece where the resident, North Carolina resident, goes to their store, signs documents into their store, and leaves with a check. That That is what happens, but that is not the only thing that happens, and the legislature has has in, in drafting fifth chapter 53 and jap, drafting chapter 24 I've said you need to have a much broader look at what is going on here you need to look at what happened before and led up to this transaction and in 53b you need to look at what happened after this the the, the signing of the documents occurred 53 190 uh, a lists a number of things that could generally be viewed as pre-contractual. Discussion, negotiation, offer, acceptance. But it does, does, does say all contractual activity, which I think would include the sending the lien to the North Carolina DMV. That document, the lien application, is signed while they are signing the other loan document. So from the moment that document is signed, at the loan document signing, Auto Money knows they're coming into North Carolina to perfect that security interest. They know that from the moment somebody walks in. But what 53190B says is that if they solicit or otherwise come into North Carolina, then they are subject to the requirements of the Act of the North Carolina Consumer Finance Act. And we have alleged that Auto Money comes into North Carolina, not only to perfect security interests but to uh, solicit we have in the in the record solicitations they've sent into North Carolina and to uh, take borrowers vehicles when those borrowers vehicles are unable to pay these repay these usurious loans so auto money either under a or B is subject to the requirements of the North Carolina Consumer Finance Act. And, and that's the stat, these are the statutes that we have sued under. That is the otherwise applicable law that they are trying to contract their way out of. And if the, if the court allows auto money to enforce a choice of law provision on the exact circumstances that the legislature had to have had in mind when it crafted 53190 and it crafted 24-2.1, then those statutes are rendered meaningless. If they can say, well, we may have contacted you in North Carolina, and you may have received that communication in North Carolina, and then we had a discussion about a loan, but because you came down to South Carolina, those things that the North Carolina legislature says we can't do no longer matter. The only way for the statute to have meaning is to take this broader view that the statute intends and look at the pre contractual activity, the contractual activity, including the lien, and the post contractual activity, the collecting of payments and the, and the taking of collateral in, in some cases. And this is not, you know, I think if you see the evidence, which is admittedly for the purposes of the, the chapter of the personal jurisdiction motion, but these are not isolated occurrences. I mean, they've accepted nine million dollars in payment just using one payment method from north carolina that we were able to find out about they have repossessed hundreds of cars they are they are perfecting security interest using the north carolina DAV at over a thousand north carolina vehicles a year um, that leads me into the, the the personal jurisdiction issue um and you know th- although we have provided specific affidavits from a significant number, I think it was 65 or 68 different borrowers. Really, the, the, the affidavit we have from a former auto money employee that talks about the mailings they send into North Carolina and the sheer volume of their use of the North Carolina DMV and their use of MoneyGram to accept payments in North Carolina and their coming into North Carolina to take cars subjects them uh, to, jurisdic- to personal jurisdiction for the, that type of loan transaction. And then the question will be whether the claims that we have asserted here relate to those activities that they've engaged in in North Carolina, and, and we, would, we would suggest that they, they surely do. Um, I wanted to touch as well on the choice of law issue as to how, the courts have looked at choice of law provisions with regard to other types of statutory claims. And the cases that this has come up in uh, most frequently are uh, Chapter 75 cases. And we cite this case in in our brief, and what the uh, North Carolina Court of Appeals said in the United Virginia Bank case is that Um, in looking at the facts of the case, and and particularly where the damage to the consumer who is asserting the claim occurred, is we are satisfied that North Carolina courts would apply Chapter 75 to the facts presented here without regard to the presence of the contractual choice of law provision. The nature of the liability being imposed by the statute is ex delicto, not ex contractu. So where you're... You're filing a what is a statutory tort claim under uh, against a um, against a defendant where the damage to the plaintiff occurred in North Carolina. Then that is what matters for determining whether what law applies, and, and that matters regardless of the choice of law provision. These are North Carolina statutory claims based on damages that occurred to North Carolina residents in North Carolina. And as regard to a Chapter 75 claim, they can't contract their way around that. Now, there is not a case applying that exact same reasoning to a Chapter 53 claim, but I struggle to see why the result would be any different. They are both consumer protection statutes that provide remedies to North Carolina residents for actions that happen in North Carolina, and that they should be able to contract their way around those consumer protection statutes with a choice of law provision, I don't think it's supported by any authority that they have presented or any authority uh, that that I'm aware of. Uh, additionally, where the injury to a party to a, to a claimant is um, financial, um, the 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 last. The, what the court says in PL Development versus Biopharma, which is a middle district case, is Lex Loci requires the application of the law to the last act where the last act occurred giving rise to an injury. The last act giving rise to a claim for unfair and deceptive trade practices is the suffering of damages. And the damages to our clients here are the making of payments from North Carolina or the taking of their car by auto money in North Carolina. And, and going even further, the, the courts have said that where the, the injury is financial, you look at where the injury is felt. And the injury here is felt by North Carolina residents in North Carolina. So I, I don't think that, that while there's not a case directly on point that deals with the choice of law issue and this ex delictu Uh, analysis with Chapter 53. I struggle to see why the analysis would be any different than another consumer protection statute, which is Chapter 75, especially when you look at the way that the legislature drafted um, the statute. I want to touch uh, again just briefly on the standard of review for the forum selection clause and and ask the court to look closely at the, the cases that have been cited. Again, it's the distinction between a Interpretation of the forum selection clause and the enforcement of the forum selection clause. There's no allegation here that this forum selection clause is ambiguous or that it is not a mandatory forum selection clause uh, that might be enforced in the commercial context. The only issue here is whether it can be enforced to this consumer contract. And where the courts are just looking at enforcement only, they have unilaterally applied the abusive discretion standard. Again, most recently, just six weeks ago, they applied the Abusive Discretion Standard. And here, looking at what Judge uh, Futrell found, and what he found is that this is a contract of adhesion, that this is a non-consumer, this is not a non-consumer loan transaction, that he deems the contract to have been made in North Carolina pursuant to the analysis of Chapter 24 that we've discussed. Um, that the court finds that the provision is um, would be unjust or unreasonable to enforce. That the court finds that the forum selection clause is the product of unequal bargaining power and overreaching. And that ties back to the factual findings of she calls from North Carolina to get information about a loan. They talk to about a loan over the phone. They ask her on the phone, do you want a loan? She says she does. Then she comes down there, and then they they spring this forum selection clause uh, on her. The, I, I suggest that th- this is not uh, manifestly unsupported by reason or so arbitrary that it could not have been the result of a reasoned decision, which is the standard that the court should look at. Um, we, we would ask the court to... Um, to affirm all of the orders below in, in each one of these cases, um, I, I think that the the effective uh, the, the ability of the North Carolina legislature to protect North Carolina resident borrowers with consumer protection laws, as they have done here in Chapter 53, in Chapter 24, and in, in in Chapter 75, hangs in the balance. Is 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 are, are the auto monies of the world going to be able to contract around consumer protection laws? After they have already been triggered. And we urge this court to find that they should not be able to do that. Unless the court has any questions, I'll rest on that. Thank you. Thank you.
0: All right, we'll hear rebuttal. Uh,
1: just to respond, when I started out, I said it's hard not to conflate the issue. So when we're talking about choice of law, again, if you go back to the Bear versus Bear case, which he recognized, there has to be no reasonable basis for the chosen law. And it is the law does not violate the fu- fundamental public policy to state otherwise applicable law, which is the Lex Loci test, which all the case law says. So when he was arguing unjust, unreasonable, um, overreaching, overbearing, that doesn't apply to choice of law. That's why I always say we've got to be careful about what we're analyzing for what test. When we turn to the choice of venue. Yes, that is right. Is it a product of fraud of overreaching, or is it unjust or unreasonable? Um, Here, with Troublefield, I would like to point out that in her affidavit, she says, auto money said they may lend me $1,000. But when she went to South Carolina and got her loan, they actually gave her uh, $2,000. So there was some negotiation going on. Um, She does say she got a flyer. Uh, but it was from 2017. The loan at issue was in 2020, so I'm not necessarily certain about what those connections would be. So when you're looking at it, they're not presented with a contract and leave. She clearly uh, negotiated more money. She clearly had to negotiate a rate because that wasn't alleged to be talked over the phone, and she had to negotiate a payment plan. Now, yes, there is a form contract because the state of South Carolina has to look at that contract and say you can use that contract. We're a regulated South Carolina um, lender. Um, and, and I would like to acknowledge that he said that there is no case law that would say that a choice of law provision is, can be overrun by Chapter 53. There, there's, there is no case law. Um, and, and that's why when you look at the Western Sky case, that judge did exactly the question Judge Wood answered, asked and went through that lex loci analysis. That is the correct standard. So I understand it's public policy, but you, you can't throw, throw everything out based upon that argument. There, there is settled law on this issue. We have attempted to structure our fares in compliance with what is settled law. 70, 80 years of it, in order to allow us to operate under the very laws in which we're regulated. So, thank you, Your Honors.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you, counsel, for really good arguments. Appreciate your time and uh, patience explaining uh, this, this uh, very technical, complicated uh, case to us. Uh, the cases are submitted, uh, and with that, we'll adjourn court. Mr. Sore.